All right, if you've got a Bible, I encourage you to go to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, it's probably a red one in front of you. Jonah is one of our minor prophets in the Old Testament. So in the back half of your Old Testament, you get to kind of like Amos, Obadiah, uh, keep going right. If you land in Matthew, you've gone too far, all right? So uh, go left. So yeah, and the reason why we call it a minor prophet is not because the, the message in the book of Jonah is like less than or minor, but just because of the content. It's, a, it's smaller in content compared to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And my prayer is we've worked through this little book here, because uh, sometimes what can, uh, what can dominate the theme of Jonah is the big fish, right? It's like that's, that's kind of what all of us, if you grew up in church, or even if you didn't grow up in church, if you kind of hear Jonah, you sort of kind of recollect this idea of a big fish and Jonah living in that belly for a few days. Uh, but I, hopefully as we've worked through this book, you, you see it's, it's way more than that. You know, yeah, the big fish is kind of a big deal, but it's sort of minor when you compare it to the whole of the book and what the writer's trying to get across to us. So today we're looking at Jonah 3. Next week we'll finish up the book in Jonah chapter 4. And then we're going to launch into kind of a sermon series in the summer that's unpacking the fruits of the Spirit. So we're looking at um, those fruits of the Spirit that are laid out in Galatians 5. But we're, what we're trying to do is go to the Gospels and see how those fruits of the Spirit are displayed uh, and lived out in the life of Jesus. So we'll look at like eight, nine different episodes um, I'm, I'm going blank. I think there's seven fruits of the Spirit, right? That's like, that's really horrible. All right, so guys, you guys are awesome. I love you. Uh, give me a little grace here when I'm kind of off script and my brain kind of shuts down. But we'll look at a few episodes in the life of Jesus that kind of unpack for us the fruits of the Spirit. And I'm really looking forward to this because I think it's, um, I think sometimes we have a tendency to look at our formation, our forming to be more like Christ. And we have a tendency to make it more about knowledge than it is about our own heart and our own attitudes. And so, you know, what we're trying to help you see here is that the goal and formation is love. And some make the argument that the fruit of the Spirit begins with love and all the other pieces kind of put flesh on what love is. And so my prayer as we work through this over the course of the summer is that God would increase our love for Him and our love for one another, because that's ultimately what the goal of formation is. It isn't more knowledge. If you're just getting knowledge, then it's doing nothing for you and it's doing nothing for your neighbors. Uh, we want our, our knowledge, our formation to be lived out in our love for God and love for one another. So yeah, that's what we're gonna try to do over the course of summer. So I know summer's crazy, people are in and out. Uh, so be here when you're here, amen? If you're not here, then be wherever you are going to be, all right? Be present there also, all right? So, okay, that was kind of weird. That's all right. Um, yeah, one more thing, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Just encourage you to come back next week. We have an opportunity for us to kind of honor our high school graduates. We do this every year, uh, usually at the end of May or 1st of June, whichever Sunday kind of works best. And so we've got like, I think, eight that we'll be honoring next week. And I think we're doing it in the 11 o'clock service. Uh, so if you come to the nine, you might miss a little bit, but we'll make sure you get the names um, so you can be praying for them. And, and don't hold me to that. We might actually be doing it in both services. I'm kind of going off script without a lot of notes up here. So it, I think it's during the 11. It's, it's one of those two services. It may be in both, but I know it's in one of those two. All right, so glad you guys have a lot of confidence in your pastor. Let's stand together in honor of reading God's word. All right, Jonah chapter 3, hear the word of the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. 
Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city, a, a visit that required three days. And so on the first day, Jonah started into the city, and this is what he proclaimed. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. He took off his royal robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and also sat in the dust. And then he issued this proclamation to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God had saw what they did and how they had turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. Super, let's pray together. God, I, I ask that you would be kind to us this morning and kind of awaken us out of the, the familiarity of this story and help us to see things that are shocking and surprising here. So once again, we ask for your spirit's help to understand and not only to understand, but also to do and apply. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Here's what I want to do this morning. I kind of alluded to it in my prayer. Uh, I, I want us to just spend a couple minutes here, a few minutes looking at kind of two sort of shocking surprises in chapter three. I think one um, we kind of agree with and we see and it's very evident. I think the other one is sort of hidden from us or uh, a better way of saying this, it's, it's difficult for us to see because I think there's uh, there's things that are very deep, deep in us that make us very, it makes it very difficult for us to kind of see the second thing that's very shocking and surprising in chapter three. So the first one is, is pretty evident. It's the repentance of Nineveh, this, this massive, large-scale repentance that goes on in the city. It's interesting, like I said a few weeks ago, the, the book of Jonah is one of the unique books of the, of the prophets in, in that it doesn't focus on the message of the prophet. So most of the, the prophets, both major and minor, kind of have a, a way of just focusing on the message that the prophet is bringing. Jonah's unique because it, it focuses more on the messenger because the, the thing that we need to hear from God is not just the message of Jonah, but the life of Jonah. However, in chapter three, it is the only chapter in four chapters where, uh, sort of speaking, the camera shifts from Jonah and focus on something else. It takes a little break from Jonah, all right? We kind of hear a little bit about Jonah in the first few verses, but the rest of the chapter kind of gives us a, a focus on Nineveh and what is kind of prominent or what kind of rises to the top as a focus on the city of Nineveh is its repentance. And so I wanna spend a few minutes here looking at the repentance of Nineveh, which is shocking, surprising, that leads us to the second one that I'm gonna wait and tell you when we get there because I don't want you to be going, oh, that's not shocking. Well, I, 
okay, moving on. All right, here we go. So, so this is beautiful. It's the second chance that Jonah gets us. You can kind of parallel chapter one with chapter three, very similar language here. The, the difference is, is that Jonah obeys the word of God. So God's word comes to Jonah again with the same word that he gave in chapter one. I want you to go to the city of Nineveh and I want you to preach against them or I want you to preach this word to the city of Nineveh. And Jonah, this time in verse three, he obeys the word of the Lord and he goes to Nineveh. And so that we can kind of be reminded here of the city of Nineveh. I touched on this a little bit when we were in chapter one, but so that we can kind of feel the, the shock of what's going on in the city. Sometimes we need to remind it how wicked and brutal and cruel the city of Nineveh was. Nineveh was the, the largest, most powerful city in this time. It was a, a massive threat to the city of, of Judah, which is where, where Jonah is in this, or Israel, where Jonah is in this time. So, so and it's, it's, it's just known for its cruelty. It's known for being a very brutal and wicked city. And I'm just gonna give you a quote that gives you sort of a taste of how wicked and brutal the city is. This is what's, what's known throughout the land in this time. As one historian writes, he says this, when they, referring to the Ninevites, would conquer another city, they would skin this, the people alive, a lot of them men, women, and children, and spread out their skins over the city walls. Then they would bury these skinned people while they were still alive up to their heads in the sand and pull their tongues out and drive a, a stake through their tongue into the ground so they would just languish in pain, dying of thirst. They would rape the women and kill them. They would even boast about raping and killing little girls. They would behead all of these people, these, these conquering nations, and make a mountain of heads outside the city so that basically this is the message. This is what happens to those who dare to oppose the Assyrians. That's the kind of brutality. That's the kind of wickedness that is going on in this city. And not only is this city an important city, it's an important city to God because God sends Jonah to go preach to this city. This wasn't Jonah's idea. This wasn't Israel's idea. This was God's idea. And so Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh, you know, a pretty long little trek here, and we pick up on verse four what happens. On the first day, that's an important detail. I encourage you to underline that. On the first day, Jonah started into the city, and this is what he proclaimed. Forty more days in Nineveh, will be overturned. That's it. Eight words in English and five words in the Hebrew language. That's it. Now we can speculate that there's possibly more that, that Jonah said. Maybe he did tell about his story that of the whole deal in chapter one, being in the fish for three days, maybe possibly, but there's a good chance that this is all that Jonah said. And the reason why I say that is that You've got to take chapter four and use it as a lens to sort of interpret chapter three because Jonah's going to Nineveh. Yes, there's been a change of heart, but there's still a deeper work that needs to happen in Jonah. He wants the Assyrians, the Ninevites to be obliterated. He wants them to be judged for their wickedness and cruelty. He wants them to be annihilated. So he comes in with this eight word or five word in the original language message that basically says this, turn or burn, amen? And that's what he does in this city. And it's interesting that, 
that the translation of overturn kind of carries this um, kind of two-edged meaning. It's very complex here. So it, it carries this meaning of destruction. So in, in Genesis, I think it's in Genesis chapter 19, that word is used for the city of Sodom, where God comes and completely destroys that city. But it also carries this idea to turn around, kind of this mindset to bring to repentance. Both of these meanings are within this word. And so look, God knows that this meaning of this word overturn is embedded, both destroy and an opportunity for you to repent and, and draw near to the Lord. Those meanings are both at play in God, but those meanings are not at play in Jonah. Jonah wants to emphasize one, and that is destruction. That's why there's no offer of hope in the message of Jonah. None. There's no like offer of like, this is what you need to do in order to avoid the judgment that's gonna come in 40 days. Because Jonah hates Nineveh. And yes, there's been a change of heart that's happened in chapter two, but there needs to be a deeper work that we'll explore in chapter four. So eight words, eight words. And then look what happens in verse five. The Ninevites believed God. First day, goes and preaches an eight-word message, and the Ninevites believe God. Sometimes that's what I want to do on Sunday morning. Amen? I got one sentence. This is it, and I'm sitting down, right? I find it interesting that in this passage, it specifically says they don't believe Jonah, but they believed God. Interesting, isn't it? And the reason why it says that is this, is that the Ninevites recognize that the words of Jonah were the words of God. And by them believing in the words of Jonah, they are actually believing in the words of God, therefore believing in God. So how do we know for sure that this wasn't just lip service, Lyle? How do we know for sure that their belief was genuine? Well, look what happens in the rest of verse five. They believe in God. They hear the words of God. They believe in him. And this is what they did. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. And so what's going on in here is they're showing physically their brokenness over their sin. This is a sign of mourning. This is a sign of sadness and sorrow. And it doesn't just end there with the common people. We actually see in verse six where the king gets word of this. And look what happens with the king. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in dust. So what is going on here where the king is humbling himself? The king is doing something that no one would have ever dreamed of him doing. When he steps off his throne and he unrobes himself, he's becoming like a common person. There's nothing to distinguish him between himself as well as the common people. He is humbling himself. He hears this word from God and he humbles himself and he becomes just like a common person. And then the king intensifies the fast. Look what he says here. In verse seven, and this is where we get some confusion. Like, what in the world is the king doing? This is what he says. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and the nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. 
let everyone call urgently on God and let them give up their evil ways and their violence. What in the world is the king doing when he extends this fast to the animal kingdom, so to speak? Because the animals are not guilty of any wrongdoing here. They're not the ones that are skinning people and wickedly worshiping false idols. So why is he extending this to the animal kingdom? Well, first is this. He wants the animals to join in the crying out to God. They are contributing to the atmosphere of mourning. So one writer says this, one day without food for 20 head of cattle, they're mooing, they're mowing, moaning, not mowing, moaning, so to speak, can be heard a half a mile away. Best way I can kind of compare this, I got a, a wonderfully stupid cat at home, all right? Not a huge fan of cats, but my children are. And so we have one at home, and that little booger head, man, in the mornings when I get up, if there is no food in that bowl, oh my goodness, it's meow is so annoying. It will not stop. Meow, meow. It's just, I, I just want to get a piece of duct tape and just put it over her mouth and say, stop, right? So, in a larger sense, what the king is doing is this, is that these animals are contributing to the mourning that's going on in the city. Secondly is this, I would argue, or I think what's also happening here is the king is sort of covering all of his bases. Like there's no kind of how-to manual on repentance. It's not like Jonah's going around offering this. I mean, what we see in chapter four, as soon as Jonah made this message, he ran up on top of a hill and wanted to wait and see the fireworks. He wanted to see the fire of God come down on this city. So Jonah's not going around and saying, hey, here's what you gotta do to repent. Here's kind of the process of repentance here. This king is going, I wanna make sure we do everything in our power in order for God to see the genuineness of our repentance. So this repentance is not just ritualistic where they're wearing sackcloth. I mean, that's part of it. There's a ceremonial fact to this, but it's also ethical in the sense that they gave up all of their wicked ways. They, they gave up all of their violence. And so this king is going, look, we're gonna, we're gonna do all we can in our power to show the genuineness of our sorrow for the sins against God. And nowhere, nowhere in all of the Bible is there this kind of massive repentance, not even in the book of Acts. Nowhere else in the Bible do we see an entire city like Nineveh hearing the word of God repenting of their sins and turning to him. Nowhere else. One of the, the themes that you see all throughout the book of Jonah, and you can go home, especially in the first three chapters, you can go home and kind of uh, read this and see this and underline where you see it, is the idea of great, this, this large, massive. So when you get to chapter one, the task that Jonah's been given to go to Nineveh is great. It's large. The, the, the city itself is great. The wickedness of Nineveh is great. The storm was great. The sailors' fear was great. The fish that we all know, right, was great. Had to be because he swallowed a human being, right? The fish was great. And then here in chapter three, we see the effectiveness of Jonah's sermon. Eight words, five words in the original language was great. 
an entire city repents and turns to God. Day one. Day one. The first day, Jonah preaches and the people, from the greatest to the least, believe and repent. It's interesting, as I looked at this stuff this week, there's a lot of commentators that want to kind of downplay or even dismiss the repentance of Nineveh here in chapter 3. And one of the reasons they want to do that is because several years, I don't know exactly how many years, but a few years later, they kind of return back to their ways. And so they take this and then use it as a lens to say, well, this was kind of half-hearted. This was probably worldly repentance and have a way of kind of downplaying and dismissing what goes on here in chapter 3. The irony of that is that Jesus doesn't do that. You hear me? The irony of that is that Jesus doesn't do that. We have a tendency to want to explain away things because we see the full picture, but, but Jesus knew the fuller picture and he doesn't dismiss or downplay their repentance. He actually brings it up as an indictment and an example for the generation that he's speaking to in this time. I mean, look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. Look what he says here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? For they repented. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now one greater than Jonah is here. If you go back and and look at this verse within its context, you would see that, that Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders here. He's having a conversation with them and the religious leaders or in essence, coming up to Jesus going, all right, look, Jesus, man, why don't you do a trick? Why don't you do a little miracle? Do your little deal here. You do some kind of magic deal, then, then we will believe in what you're saying and who you're saying you are. Do us a trick, give us a sign, and then we will believe in you. And this is when Jesus comes. It's you, wicked and perverse generation. You remember the... The town of Nineveh, well, Jonah went there, first day, preached five words, and they repented. Someone greater than Jonah is here, the very word of God in flesh, Jesus Christ, the God-man, is in your place, and you're telling me to do a trick. And if I do a trick, then you'll believe. I don't know about you, that's really convicting. Because that's not an indictment on just this generation that Jesus is talking to. I, I would say this is an indictment on all of us in this room because we know far more than Nineveh knew and we know far more than what those religious leaders know. I mean... I recognize this doesn't kind of help with church growth, but I want to say this, that sometimes this place can be the most dangerous place that you come to weekly. You get that? Because every week we gather together and we sing the word of God 
We read the Word of God, and we hear the Word of God. And if the Word of God is not met by belief, and the way that we see belief in the Word of God is when there's repentance. It's not the only way, right? Not the only way. Please don't hear me give an exhaustive understanding here, but it is a big part, right? Because if the word of God functions like James tells it to function as a mirror, and we don't want to walk away from a mirror and forget what we saw, right? So if we're using the word of God as a mirror, then what is it doing? It's exposing things. It's revealing things. It's showing things. So every time we gather together, every single Sunday, the word of God is coming to you. It's being spoken to you, and the Spirit of God is showing things in your life, not to bring condemnation, not to bring some kind of judgment onto you, but to show you the ways of death and to lead you into life. And leading you into life begins with repentance. This is a dangerous place. If all you do is hear And the word of God is not met with belief that leads to repentance. One writer says this, repentance is the solution for every social and relational disease in the world. I'll say it again. Wherever there is a social and relational problem it's because repentance is missing. And I know some of you might be going, well, that's a little overly simplistic, right? That's a, that's a little naive. You're telling me that all these relational social problems can be summed up in one word? Well, okay, maybe that's a huge overstatement, but let's just kind of make it personal in your own life. When there's conflict, no matter what kind of relationship it is, whenever there's problems, whenever there's issues, whenever there's arguing, whenever there's fighting, If it continues on, usually what is missing is repentance. Like that's that's how it works with me and my spouse, me and Kathy. Like if if my starting point, right, is all right, I want to show her how she's wronged me. If that's my starting point, even if she has wronged me, if my starting point in this conflict is I want her to see how she sinned and hurt me. I don't know about you, that just doesn't work real well for my relationship, right? Maybe it works well for you, maybe you've got it figured out, but it, it doesn't work well for me. But if my starting place is how have I sinned against you? Like if that's my conversation that I'm having internally, to where my posture is beginning with repentance and not accusations. It changes a lot, doesn't it? If you're a parent here, you know what I'm talking about too, don't you? If your kid's done something wrong, they sinned against you, whatever it may be, and you kind of, you know, you kind of build your courage up sometimes, especially as they get older. And said, all right, I'm going to confront, you know, this is going to be awkward, weird. And you kind of get your speech in there. But as soon as they come broken, as soon as repentance comes, man, it's, it's like, done, right, let's go, right? And if this is true 
in our horizontal relationships, then how much more true is it in our relationship with God? So look, I'm gonna state the obvious, all right? The word of God is coming to you this morning. The word of God is coming to you this morning. Not just when I stood up here. It started at the very beginning in the call to worship. So what's the spirit of God showing and revealing? So that's the first shock. That's the first kind of surprise. The second one, a little shorter, and they work hand in hand, all right? And that is this, is that God relents. So when our posture is repentance, then how does God respond to our repentance? Well, he relents. He shows compassion. He shows kindness here. Look what happens in verse 10. And I'm going to show you why this is shocking. Most of us probably don't feel it very shocking, but it is. Verse 10, when God saw what they had did, when he saw their repentance, their mourning, their sorrow over their sins, and they had turned from their evil and wicked ways, not just that they put on sackcloth and went through some ritualistic things there. No, no, he saw their, their, their turning away from the evil and the wickedness that they're engaging in. This is what God did. He had compassion on them and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Now, some of you have a translation, if you're maybe an esv or if you've got a NAS, whatever it is, that translation for compassion can, can say relent. God relented. And that sometimes brings some confusion because we think, did God change his mind? Did God all of a sudden kind of have a, a sort of a hiccup in his character and change his mind? No, that's not what took place here. God does not change his mind. He is steady. He's constant. He is a rock. But look, the situation did change. Nineveh repented. And the way that God has so orchestrated his world, he allows human response to influence the working out of his plans. Look, if they do not repent, judgment comes on the city of Nineveh. If they do not cry out, judgment comes on the city of Nineveh. But they do. They repent. They cry out for mercy. And God's heart toward our sin is always just judgment, but his heart toward those who repent and believe is always grace and compassion and kindness. And here is where I think we don't feel the shock of this text, because most of us in this room, including me, expect God to do this. We, we feel like God is sort of obligated to give compassion and kindness. We're not shocked by this, but I'm here to tell you, Jonah was. He's so stinking shocked. We'll see this in verse four. He's bitter. He's angry at the grace and the compassion and kindness of God that's being poured out on Nineveh. And I'm here to tell you, Nineveh's blown away. Now, where do I get that? Well, look at verse nine. You see, after the king issues this this massive fast, this, this confession, this repentance of sin, look what he says. Who knows? Who knows? You see, the king understood the freeness of God, that there's nothing that humanity can do to get God in our debt. There's nothing that humanity can do that then therefore obligates God to act a certain way. Our God is free. 
He's free. He doesn't owe us anything. But when we think we're entitled to something, we come to verse 10 and it's like, yeah, yeah, that's what God's supposed to do. And all of a sudden, the compassion, kindness, and grace of God is no longer something that overwhelms us, like we just got done singing, overwhelmed by the mercy of God. It now becomes boring or worse, like it does with Jonah, and makes you bitter. But if you, if we, all right, including myself here, if we get the freeness of God, and it gets deep within us, I'm here to tell you, man, it can change you. It will transform you and make you a new person because you will be overwhelmed by the mercy and grace of God because you recognize that God doesn't have to do it. He wants to. I mean, think about this in just normal life. Whenever someone's kind to you because you know they're trying to get something out of you, does that feel like kindness? Thank you. It does. It feels like manipulation, right? Don't you hate it when your kids do that? I know why you're saying, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. I know why you're cleaning out the dishwasher and cleaning up your room. You're wanting to go somewhere, right? I mean, you know, we... We kind of banter and be goofy about that, but that, that, like, just like it doesn't feel like kindness. When someone gives you love because there's an agenda, they want to get something out of it, it doesn't feel like love. But when that's free, it changes, doesn't it? Because you know my love for Chick-fil-A. I, I love them, right? And their, their slogan or their, their word, this phrase they use all the time is what? Say it. Say it out loud. My pleasure. Yeah. No matter what you do, right? We've spilt Coke, pop, tea, milkshakes on the floor. They come and clean it up. And my pleasure. My pleasure. And look, I, I'm here to tell you, I mean, that's a, that's a beautiful way to train your employees to interact with their customers. I'm like all for it. And even McDonald's is sort of, sort of doing it, depending on what McDonald's you goes to. Other, otherwise, some McDonald's say, like, here's your food. Thanks for bothering me, right? It's like, <laughs> I don't know how you feel sometimes. Like, dude, this is a job. Like, am I kind of paying, whatever. But here's, <laughs> here's the thing you learn is that, yes, it's a beautiful way for customers to interact with their employees. I mean, employees to interact with their customers, but saying my pleasure never transforms our lives. Why? Because it's not free. It's not. They're getting paid to say that. If they don't say it, they get fired probably. They went through months of training to make sure they say it with a smile and as genuine as it possibly can be. But I'm telling you what, you walk out of Chick-fil-A, you're not changed by that because ultimately you know it's not free. But hear me, when God says it's my pleasure to be compassionate and gracious and kind, it changes you. It changes you. And so I'm concerned because I'm concerned with my own soul Am I, are we, overwhelmed 
by the mercies of God or has God's mercies become boring and they've lost their amazement because we've allowed this sort of sense of entitlement to kind of weave into our being and we feel like there's things that we can do or say to get God in our debt and to obligate him to act a certain way. His kindness, his grace, his compassion that each of us in this room experience day in and day out is free. It's free. So, What is the word of God coming to you this morning and saying? Where is it saying, I want you to take this word and unite it with belief and that uniting of belief is seen in your repentance. How is the word of God functioning like a mirror this morning? Maybe there's someone you need to go and reconcile with. Maybe there's There's some things you need to put down. Maybe there's a conversation you need to have with your spouse, your mom, your dad, a friend, whatever it is. Maybe, maybe what you need to do is sit down here and go, Lord, man, I I have gotten to a place where your grace is just like nothing. It doesn't do anything in me. Look, and here's the beauty that the work of Jesus is that we have the freedom to do that without the fear of condemnation. The word of God doesn't come to bring condemnation to you today. It comes to show you death and then lead you into life. And so you can come to him this morning if you're a child of God and go, look, I'm bored with your grace. I'm not overwhelmed by your mercies. Work in my spirit, work in my soul. Help those songs that we sing on Sundays to be a true reflection of what is going on in my interior world. How? Is the Spirit bringing the Word of God to you this morning? Let's pray.